you have intention and if you have a need. And I, I was kind of stopped by that, and I thought, okay, all of this about craving and, and, and wanting hasn't really addressed need, this extraordinary circumstances of, of, of like making medicine out of a glass of water, if that's all you have, then it, it sounds like all our training to try and overcome and notice our constant wanting or pushing away doesn't ever address, wow, this person needs medicine. There are needs, definitely. We need food. We need shelter. When you're sick, you need medicine. Yes. What if we said that seems problematic in regard to that? There isn't much more to say than, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, yes. There are needs. And the thing is, too, that <clears throat> what we don't need is suffering. Okay? Um, why do... Why are we the kind of being that suffers? I have that answer. You know the answer. Okay. If we didn't have suffering, then we wouldn't know what joy and happiness was. Well, certainly, if we didn't know what if we didn't know what joy if we didn't have suffering, we wouldn't know what joy and happiness were. Um. It's like if we didn't have the left hand, we wouldn't know what the right hand was. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if, if everything's on a continuum like that, we... <coughs> well, I was thinking in something at a little more, at a little more basic level. Yeah, did you? Yeah, go ahead. I think of suffering as the, um, the pathway or um, the tool that one may use to learn about reality or, or to find what is so, because it is at the center of that that we find the, what is it, the, the, the compassion. And that, that's how I feel it's suffering now. Yeah. Well, this is, this is interesting. There's a lot of ways that we can look at suffering and what results from the fact that we suffer but what I was wanting to get at was that suffering makes us want to do something. It motivates us to make some change. And that's an important thing. Uh, many beings really need suffering because that purpose needs to be performed. If they weren't uncomfortable, they wouldn't make the change that's necessary. Okay? Well, this is, this is why we have craving. If an animal didn't become hungry, it wouldn't eat. Okay? 
If we didn't crave sex, we wouldn't reproduce. If we weren't averse to pain, then we would be injured and suffer and die more easily. If poisonous things didn't taste bad, we would eat them and die from it. And the way that we're constructed, we feel pleasure in association with those kinds of things that, in general, are beneficial towards our survival, our continued well-being, our reproduction. <coughs> and we're programmed to find as unpleasant those things that are detrimental to us, that uh, uh, threaten our survival, that undermine our ongoing well-being, that interfere with our ability to reproduce. So nature has endowed us with craving, a compulsion uh, that arises in response to pleasure and pain, and programmed us cleverly enough so that if you're one kind of organism, you crave these kinds of things. If you're another kind of organism, you crave those kinds of things. Because those kinds of things might be bad for this kind of organism, so they have aversion to them, but they're good for that kind. So that's what they, that's what produces pleasure and that's what they crave. So the reason we are the way we are, it's not just some kind of a dirty trick. And there's some of these other wonderful things that come from it because of, because, yes, because we experience suffering, you know, with, uh, without the darkness, how would we know about the light? This, this is true. But at a more fundamental level, these things exist because they have served a purpose. But the point is that we don't no longer need to suffer. We no longer need to be driven by craving. This is the point. It doesn't change the fact that we have needs. It doesn't change the fact that the world is full of things that are threatening to our survival and our well-being. It doesn't change any of that. But the mechanism that has, the mechanism that we were born with to make us behave in the ways that we needed to behave, we don't need to be ruled by that anymore. It's no longer necessary. If we need medicine, we don't need to be filled with greed to make medicine. Although the people that make our medicine are filled with greed. <laughs> and we don't, we don't need to suffer to do the things that are good for us. That we're past that. But we still carry with us this predisposition to respond. We're not going to stop experiencing pleasure and pain. That's not going to happen. You know, even even a fully enlightened being, pleasurable things are pleasurable things, and unpleasant things are still unpleasant. But what we don't need anymore, and what we can get beyond, is the compulsive drive of craving in response to that, and having our mind flooded with this feeling of suffering to make us get up and move. We don't need that. But we'll still have our needs. We'll still have to respond to those needs. But we can respond to them using different faculties that we have. Like for one thing, 
we have a lot of intelligence. We are capable of, of recognizing from a non-emotional perspective the thing, things that we need and things that are harmful to us and things that are good to do and things that are not good to do. As a matter of fact, I think we spend a lot of time trying to train our children. Don't rely on your urges. Use your brain. Right? Because, you know, for, for a deer in the forest, urges work really well. And the deer in the forest doesn't have a, enough of a brain to do everything it needs to do on the basis of observation and, and projection of consequences and so forth. But we do. <coughs> so that's an important difference. We have intelligence. The other thing is we have involved an incredibly high degree of cooperation, interaction, socialization. We still feel like we're the lone wolf. And we live like we're the lone wolf. But we're not. That was a long, long time ago. We are a part of a social group. We're part of a family. We're part of many different social groups. And we're pretty much inseparable from that. Every now and then there will be an odd individual that goes off into the wilderness and, and they're going to be completely isolated from everyone else. Becomes a hermit. Goes lives in the caves of the Himalayas and things like that. Well, one of the reasons for going to, to live in a cave in the Himalayas is to discover your true nature. And one of the things that you would discover in a cave in the Himalayas is that you aren't the imaginary lone wolf that you think you are. That you're part and parcel of everything. That you're interconnected. That there really is no separation. Um, the reason that some people find a frontier and go off uh, is because they don't get along very well with other people and they have a problem fitting in with society. They're misfits. And it's unfortunate, but in our evolution we've been progressively, you know, those kinds of, that part of our gene pool that produces that kind of individual has been like 99.99% eliminated. Every now and then there's one like that. Most of the time they end up in trouble. They don't manage to escape from society. Instead they end up living in a prison cell somewhere if they're not executed. You know, but the rest of us, we're part of a whole. We're social beings. We're all interconnected. And it makes us so much more powerful. Instinctive drives serve a really good purpose when an organism is functioning largely individualistically. But to the more, the more that we become part of interdependent social groups, then the less well that kind of thing works. And that's exactly what we're finding. Here we are enormously socialized. We have all this power that comes from our cooperativity. I mean, just consider for a moment. Any of the things that you have, you know, could you possibly have them with, without the support of society? You absolutely could not. The house you live in, you could spend your entire life and not finish building it. And, 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 and even to the degree that you might succeed, you still have to rely on somebody else to dig the iron ore out and make the nails. Right? 
everything. We are so interdependent, it's just, it's phenomenal. This is, this is what we really are. This is what we are, and we're so powerful this way. We've covered the planet, we've taken over everything, we've pushed pipelines across the tundra, and we bore holes through mountains and under the English Channel, and all the things we do are amazing. You know, just driving from home, you know, I, I, I never get over the fact that I drive down a road that we've sliced a chunk out of the mountain. <laughs> because we want to drive on level ground. We didn't want to go uphill and then down again. So we sliced a piece of the mountain off so that we just... We're incredibly powerful, powerful in that way. But our problem is that we're still carrying all this old baggage of all of this greed and aversion. So when you're powerful people filled with filled with greed, prone to hatred, well, here's the result. The word read the newspaper. This is the problem. These two things don't go together. And the simple fact is that cooperation, harmony, and an inner drive that comes from compassion instead of greed and aversion. Working the way, working together the way we can, if we all came from a place of compassion, my goodness, what would that be like? Think about it. Needs? Our needs would certainly be much, much better met than they are right now. Right? So, we don't need suffering. We don't need craving. That's why we consider, can consider the possibility of letting them go. We have smart brains, and we've learned to function together. We've learned that functioning together we're enormously more effective and powerful than, than Superman, than any of the people in the wonder comics with uh, all the different superpowers. We've already got more than all of that. But, we're, but what we need to get rid of is there are vested, these vestiges of the past that are creating some problems. Okay? So, and that's, that's what we're working on. That's what, that's the gift that we have that all of our modern bodhidharmas have brought us. Buddha figured this out 2,500 years ago, and it's arrived just in the nick of time. We hope. <laughs> we hope. It would have been nice if it had been a little sooner. Yeah. Be a little more relaxed and not so intense. But we've got it now, and so let's learn to work with it. So that, that is the point. It is, this, this is basically what the Third Noble Truth is about. It is possible to completely overcome this compulsion, craving, to free ourselves of it. If we do, our mind will no longer keep flooding itself with feelings of misery to make us get up and do something we'll still be able to get up and do something. But if we can get rid of the craving, 
then this little mechanism in our mind won't always be making us feel bad so that we'll do something. And if we can get rid of it, we won't be creating so much unnecessary pain and suffering in the world. There will still be pain. And there will still be, as long as there are unenlightened sentient beings, there will still be suffering. But we won't need to make any more than is already going to be there as a result of the fact that the world is the way it is and we are the way we are. So, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Worth going after. That brings us back to something we talked about earlier. Is this real? Is this realistic? Is this imaginary? No wonder some people say 10,000 lifetimes. You know, It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It is. I, I know. It is hard to imagine. It's a nice idea. Well, imagine there's no craving. <laughs> none in me, none in you. We all work in harmony. Act out of compassion. Support each other. Love each other. God is love. Love is everything. It sounds so good, and we want it so badly. And then the legitimate question. Is it possible? This is where faith comes in. Not, not the kind of faith of having to believe in things because they were handed down on stone tablets or anything like that. It's more a kind of confidence that we need to be inspired to faith by being presented with things that give us the confidence to try it out and see if it will really work. It is not an easy path. It doesn't happen really quickly. It takes determination. It takes perseverance. It means you have to work against a lot of really deeply ingrained inner sources of resistance. It's not an easy path. That's why you have to have some faith. You have to have some confidence. You have to believe that it works. And it's a good thing that people take up meditation and they meditate and their lives get better. Because this is one of the ways that faith becomes instilled in us. It's enough to make us say, well, you know, if what they said about meditation is true, I wonder if some of the other stuff is true, too. Maybe it is. And when I started to meditate, it wasn't easy. And at first it didn't seem like I was going to get really... It didn't really seem like it was going to be worthwhile. Anybody have that feeling? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That... There was a certain amount of skepticism, doubt, but you were fortunate enough that there were, there were some factors that inspired enough faith and confidence in you that you kept it up and then you started realizing, recognizing the fruits of it and then it became, it became well, it became easier on its own but also the fact that it was, it was making important changes for you made it easier too. The same thing is going to be true of the rest of this. So, is it possible to become a being who's completely free from all craving, and therefore free from suffering, and therefore is 
in their in their activities in life are not going to be creating a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering for other beings, and in fact might be doing things to help relieve the pain and suffering of other beings. One of the most important things of which, initially especially, is going to be to try to instill the same kind of confidence and faith in other people that they will take up the same practice. You know. Um, if you became a being free from craving and filled with compassion, you could go out and help people move their furniture, feed people, homeless people on the street and things like that. But more effectively is you might go out and try to encourage another person or another ten people or another hundred people to undertake this path and to get to the place that you are. So at least in the short term, that's going to be one of the most powerful things that you can do out of the compassion that you develop. But you've got to get that yourself. And if you've got it yourself, you're going to be much more inspiring to other people. Right? Yeah. So why should you believe me that this is possible? Anything I can do to convince you? Can I ask a question? Yes. The, uh, your remarks uh, make me ask myself a question. Is he talking about fighting evolution or is he cooperating with evolution? And I concluded that you are cooperating. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the second question that comes to mind. What, how do we keep from being wiped out because we're not good at self-defense? Because we're not good at self-defense. Um, why would we not be good at self-defense? Because I haven't heard you say anything about the things that cause people to defend themselves. Um, for example, anger at 9-11. Uh, well, okay. That is a deep and complicated issue. And it's really not a good time to get in, but I can address it to a certain degree. 9-11 happened, and we responded by going out and doing things to make a whole lot more people even more angry at us than they already were. Does that make sense in terms of self-defense? No, but doing nothing makes no sense to me either. Doing nothing makes no sense either. I agree with that. Doing nothing doesn't make a lot of sense either. There are better alternatives, though, than either doing nothing or doing what we did, going out and making even more people hate us even more than they already did. I agree, but what would that be? Well, that's where it gets to be a deep and complex question, is what would we do instead? But can't we imagine that there are better things that we could have done that, you know, I don't know the answers, we're not going to solve the world's problems as we sit here this afternoon, but there's a lot of really intelligent people in this country, and we have incredible resources at our disposal. And if instead of using them to blow people up, instead of using them in a way that makes people hate us, what if we, just what if, what if we use those resources to try to make people like us instead? That seems to me like a really good approach to self-defense. Well, I'm a product of the World War II vintage. Yes. And 
That's the so-called good war, because we were clearly attacked from two places. It was black and white. Hitler was a nasty guy. He did terrible things. Yeah. Yeah. And they bombed Pearl Harbor. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But the country that I grew up in has spent all of its time trying to create another black and white situation so it could do the same thing and feel good about itself. And it's failed over and over and over again. Because these, you know, it's just not, it just hasn't been happening. Oh boy, we wish, you know, this is like kids. Kids, you know, young boys especially. Uh, they're playing with guns and they imagine the bad guy is going to come and I'm going to fight the bad guy and, and win and I'm going to feel so good. And as a nation, we've been wanting to play that game again. We've been wanting another Hitler so that we could overcome the bad guy and we could feel really good about ourselves. And because it hasn't happened, we've made a real mess of things all over the world. We are the bad guy. What's that? We are the bad guy. We've made ourselves into the bad guys. And, yeah, and that's really unfortunate. So, I'd like to think that we can look ahead to, to a place where we act with a lot more wisdom, compassion, love, use our minds better, and come up with better solutions, stop all of our knee-jerk reactions. After 9-1-1, collectively as a nation, we didn't think, we didn't use our brain. We had a knee-jerk reaction. We hit, hit back. And that's unfortunate. It does, I mean, is the war in terrorism over us? No. So what I'm suggesting is maybe if we follow this path, maybe there are better solutions and maybe we can find them. But I'm not, no, I'm not suggesting that we do nothing. I'm not suggesting, I mean, we are going to remain intelligent people. Also, this kind of sort of gets ahead of things a little bit, but it's it's a good thing to bring up. You know, we always come up with these difficult situations. It's wrong to kill somebody. We don't want to cause harm and suffering to anybody else. But what if it's the only way to keep that person from killing ten other people or a hundred other people? I mean, that's our kind of... That, that's, on a small scale, that's the World War II situation all over again, right? Not that there's simple answers to that. Not that we can carve it in stone and say, always, it's always better to kill the one guy to save the ten. Because it's not that simple. might work a lot of the times, but there will be other times that it doesn't work. But those kinds of situations do exist. And we're not, you know, we're not saying that an awakened person loses their capacity to recognize that situation. We're saying that an awakened person has a lot better resources to draw on in deciding how to deal with the situation, and an awakened person is not being driven by knee-jerk reactions, compulsions, emotions, that an awakened person can call more fully upon all of the resources they have, intellectual and otherwise. And maybe maybe they can think of a better solution, or maybe they still gotta shoot the bad guy. You know, I don't know. But whatever they do, it's probably gonna work better and 
be ultimately a lot more beneficial than if, if it was someone else. Okay? Yeah, I asked the question only because I, without knowing real statistics involved, I suspect people like we are trying to become yeah. are still very much in the minority. Yes, absolutely, we are. Yeah, we are in the minority. And we're going to have to confront this problem. While we're a very, very small minority, there's going to be a lot of, we're going to be confronted with a lot of greed and hatred and exploitation, and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And turning our backs and rolling over is not how we deal with it. It absolutely isn't. And we need, and, and this is where we get into talking about the virtue part of this, this path. The led your virtue, you know, on the surface it looks like this is how you'd be a nice person, you behave in this way. But it isn't really. It's about how do you solve these real life problems. That's what virtue is about. It's about the problem of do you shoot the one guy to save the ten? Yeah. So in, in my martial training, one of the things we learn very big, big is so we have the ability to take out with our hands somebody easily. Yet the real solution is that you don't do anything to them, and if necessary, you absorb the punches and allow them to go on. And yet, there's if you're protecting your family and you have three people you're worried about. You're probably going to take the first one down, but then it's interesting because you can learn to do things in a mindful manner, so you don't even really need to touch them. They can go run into the wall themselves and handle themselves, and let them take a lesson that way. So there are a lot of options other than just breaking somebody's neck, let's say. Now, on an individual level, I, it's hard for me to apply that globally, but certainly from a one-on-one. -on -one. I'm remembering the women of Sparta, was it, that took charge of that situation? <laughs> <laughs> so, let's not forget. <laughs> there are a lot of ways to solve problems, aren't there? This may be very simple, but, and I think there is a movement now, you know, with the children and the teaching, because I see, you know, more more people trying to get the Dharma into the schools. And the parents are transferring all this information to the children. And not that I like to be around children, but it that's what gives me hope, mm -hmm. is that we're teaching them and they're going to. That's yes. how it's going to happen. And there is a movement now, is there not, of educating the, the young it's, children? It's, it's, a, it's a twitch. <laughs> Twitch that will become a movement, we hope. <laughs> a while back, I, I heard a rumor that uh, the countries up in you know Sweden, Norway, Finland, one in there, decided, that's it, we're done, we're not going to hit kids anymore. It's going to be illegal, you spank your kid, you're going to jail. And a lot of uh, Americans and some Europeans were like, what? How, how are you going to communicate with them? And uh, and they asked a bunch of parents who who were living under this law when it was still fresh. How do you do this? How how are you going to raise your child without hitting them? And and I loved this answer. This woman said, "Well, you get very creative." 
And that's where she left it. And it just left this explosion of, uh-oh. <laughs> and that's where we later come up with stuff like, oh, well, you're grounded till you're 21. What does that really mean? You, you know, you're not hitting them, but you're, you're putting other motivations before them. Yes, that, that's a, there are a lot of different ways to solve problems. A lot of them better than what we've usually been using. And I do, I mean, it's kind of a side, but I do think if you hit children, you're going to raise children that hit other people. And then your children are going to have a problem until they realize that that's not tolerated and accepted. And if they don't realize that's not tolerated and accepted, then they're going to go through life with a lot of problems. A lot of problems. It's tolerated and accepted is the problem. Yeah, it's tolerated and accepted is the problem. But okay, so what can I do to convince you that this is possible? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a question about coming back to the craving. So take the hypothetical piece of chocolate cake, and you're debating, eat it, not eat it. Uh -huh. So um, how would you know, and how would you feel if you were eating it out of craving, versus just having a piece of chocolate cake, no big deal, um, what would be the difference mm -hmm. in that experience? Well, uh, the question is, if you're eating a piece of chocolate cake, how do you know whether you're eating it out of craving or you're just eating it because eating chocolate cake is a good thing to do under this present set of circumstances? Because it was there. And what did you say? Oh, because it was there. <laughs> you know, and because it was there, and and because you're hungry would be a very good reason, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's any craving there. Because, you know, an awakened person is going to continue to eat, and if you offer them cat food or chocolate cake, they're most likely going to choose the chocolate cake. Unless there was some really good reason, you know, like uh, somebody else really wanted the chocolate cake and there were no more cats. <laughs> but uh, yeah, an awakened being, awakened being still experiences pleasure. An awakened being would still rather sit in the sun on a cold day rather than sit in the shade, so on and so forth. To a certain extent, this is coming from the fact that they have as much respect for the mind and body that they are as they would any other mind and body out there. And so they will feed it, they'll care for it, they'll put it in a place where it feels more comfortable rather than less comfortable, unless there's some good reason for sitting in the less comfortable place. So it's possible to do all these things. Now how would you personally know? Well, you need to get to recognize craving. And craving, it, it is, it's that quality that's going to make you eat the chocolate cake even if you know you shouldn't. That um, you're going to feel bad afterwards because of all the sugar in it because you already weigh 20 more pounds and it's good for you, and you're not hungry, and you know, things like that. If you're eating it 
in those kinds of circumstances, it's fairly obvious. There's, but there's this compulsion, there's this wanting. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. And it's kind of obvious. But that doesn't mean that you won't eat the chocolate cake even in the absence of grief. Okay? Yeah, or you had a disagreement with someone earlier, and then you feel sort of upset and sad about it, and then the chocolate cake somehow seems more attractive to you at that moment. <laughs> Because there's unpleasant feelings going on. Yeah. Yeah. Then in that case, you're eating the chocolate cake out of a mixture of desire and aversion. <laughs> yeah. Probably trying to get over your, your, the aversion you have for how badly you feel about what happened. Yeah. So I want to go back to your question of convincing, um, yeah. how you can convince us. Thanks. <laughs> and, and when you were talking about. Um, faith, the importance of faith and our intentions and, you know, how that increases our hope and makes us want to follow the path that uh, can liberate us and other people. So um, I think I have a baseline of that, uh, of that faith and can use my intelligence and other skills to help me with my intentions. Mm -hmm. Yet sometimes I get bogged down because when I look at sort of the history of the human world, since we've been humans, we've so often um, had an opportunity to do things in a more skillful way, a uh, more virtuous way, a way that would, you know, increase our wisdom and our compassion. And we haven't done that, which is, of course, understandable. But where I, I get bogged down a little bit is, I mean, Buddhism and the principles have been around for thousands of years. And I know there's one teacher who says we're on a 10,000-year plan, so don't you know get bogged down in the details. <laughs> but I would still, uh, when, for example, uh, to take a common example, when I look at Tibet, for example, I mean, there was enormous understanding of the teachings, of, of following the path, and then something so um, difficult there that has, um, that, and, and other countries too, when I think of things that have happened in Vietnam, for example, that's when I do need to be convinced mm -hmm. a little bit more. Okay, well now this is a, this is a, yeah, this is an important part of it, definitely. You look at the world, you look at Buddhist country, countries, and you say, well, if this is really true and if it really works, it didn't seem to work there quite as well as it could have. You know, and, and I have to agree with that. You've probably heard that, or heard about the fact that the Dalai Lama says that what happened with China was Tibet's karma. That Basically, the Tibetans had done things that set things up so that this would happen. And that's in spite of, of being a, uh, a Buddhist country and where all these values are... Yeah, so, well, how come, how come all these Tibetans weren't so... How come Tibet wasn't the kind of uh, craving-free, compassionate society that we're talking about. And I agree with you that 
it, it, it seems like Tibet should have been a place where that could happen. I mean, all of the, everything was in place. I mean, they ran the whole show, the government, everything else. You know, how come the Buddhist couldn't have created a true Buddhist society? Instead, they created a society that was stuck in a kind of medieval thinking, where there was a lot of poverty surrounding lavish temples and monasteries. Why did that happen? Well, that's a legitimate that's a legitimate question to ask. And I suppose that that's not so much addressing the question of whether whether this kind of attainment, the ultimate cessation of craving, is possible. It's sort of the next question after that. Is it possible on a scale that will make any difference? Right? Yeah. So, um, and... For me, that is a matter of pure faith. Arrived at in the same way I'm going to talk about you arriving at the faith and confidence that achieving this kind of liberation is possible. But it hasn't. But this other thing, where not only have not not only have people become individually liberated, but it's happened to enough of them that we've actually had that we actually have a Buddhist society, that has not happened. No, it hasn't. And is it possible? I believe it is on the basis... I have a lot of, of reasons that are strong enough to satisfy me, to make me believe it's possible. And to make me want to do whatever I can to try to make that happen. But we have no way of knowing it's possible until it's happened. If it happens once, then we'll know it's possible. Right? If if Tibet had been that kind of success, then we could hold Tibet up to the rest of the world and say, it's possible, we can all do this. Unfortunately, we can't. But I'm hoping that we're still going to do that. We're still going to create a Buddhist society that can be held up to show the rest of the world that it is possible for human beings to come to and live in this kind of place. Well, let's go back to is it possible on an individual basis. Yes? Uh, one thing I struggle with sometimes is that um, I've heard a lot of uh, Dharma teachers say, well, I'm not fully enlightened. And they've been practicing 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Pretty diligently, you would assume. And so I wonder, if these people are achieving full enlightenment, who is? Right. Okay. <laughs> this is this is this is getting into it here. This is one of the we're raise, I like this. We're raising all the good questions. We're not pussyfooting around them and pretending and being nice about it. No, this is serious obstacles that stand in the way of being convinced. And until you're really convinced you're not going to be able to embrace this path the way that I want you to. You had something to ask, Barbara. Oh, I, I just wondered whether Bhutan was a, was kind of an example. There's, it's so tiny. It is so tiny, but you're right. It is. I'd say it's the it's it's the best example we have. It's the closest. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and on on a small scale, there are other 
there are other examples we could come up with here and there uh, as well. They're part, they're part of what can help us to sustain enough confidence to give it a shot. Can, can I answer your question? Um, it seems to me that I'm convinced about this because I want to be. Yes, very because good. Because it's mm-hmm. the best alternative among the things that I see. I want to. So yeah. there. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> All right. That's that. That is that's a really good reason. Yeah. So, so if you're like I'm convinced that and I have faith that if I do the work, it'll happen. But I also have a belief that I can continue to do the work and go deeper, and it doesn't really make any difference. There's no real end spot to it. Maybe yeah. until I die. So I just continue doing the work, knowing that if I go through the same cycle of principles over and over and over, <laughs> that my perception changes and it just keeps going deeper and deeper as a spiral. So yeah. it really is. So people who say I've been doing this 30 years and I continue to do it because there's always some place. There's more to get. I yes. Guess. Yes. Hey, that's good too. I like that. Yeah. But I was wondering if, like, thinking about this ideal world where and how to get along and stuff can't itself be kind of like a distraction in a certain way from the practice, you know? Because you're not doing it to create another world. You're doing it to do it, you know? You're doing it because it works best, you know? I don't, I don't. Some intention of like some future perfection, you know? I'm doing it because it works well, you know? No, I don't think you need to worry about that because I think that to the degree that you are thinking in these larger terms, you are, it's a way of cultivating loving kindness and compassion. It is going to contribute to, it's not going to get in the way. Okay, because I think of political activists who get burnt out, you know, they try and they yeah. try and get all burnt out, and then it's like they destroy themselves in a certain way because it doesn't, well, that's, the work report doesn't happen, and then they get cynical and give up. And, well, that's a, an important thing about this. The important part of the path as a whole is non-attachment. The important thing about this is you don't let yourself get attached to the outcomes. You don't let yourself get attached to the goals. Because that gets in the way of doing the only thing you can, which is the best that you can. And when you get attached to goals and you start weighing the quality of your achievements, it will undermine your ability to do the absolute best you can. So you do have to to practice unattachment along with this whole thing. But okay, what... let's, Let's focus... First of all, on is it possible for any human being to achieve what the Buddha claimed that he achieved? And the ways that we can approach that. And and then after that, we can consider, well, if it's possible for any human being or some human being like the Buddha, is it possible for very many others? Is it possible for us? for all of us in this room. And then the next question beyond that, if we if if we can come to a place where we have some faith, some belief that everybody in this room could do it, then we could say, could could it spread enough beyond this room to change the nature of society and the world? So let's let's work at that by stages. And let's start with the first one, the one that's the first obstacle, the one that's going to make you trip right away, is, is this really possible at all? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the Buddha said about the end of suffering. 
which is the third and fourth noble truths. Where the third noble truth is, it describes how this can happen, how it's possible. And then the fourth noble truth is how do we get from here to there. Granted that it's possible. Granted that it's possible to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. How do we get to the place where we can swim across the Atlantic Ocean? So, that's what the fourth noble truth is about, the path. And then, is it really the Atlantic Ocean, or are we really only talking about the pool at U of A? How hard is it? How realistic is it? How many of us can make it? And, and so forth. So, now first of all... May I ask a rude question? No. Do you, do you think... <laughs> Do you consider yourself enlightened? Do I consider myself enlightened? Yes. I'll tell you about that as we go along, okay? Okay. That was part of my plan. (laughs) Okay. So, one of the really wonderful things about this path, to begin with, is that it is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. As soon as you start practicing it, you'll start reaping rewards. And that will give you the faith and the confidence and the motivation to continue on. And you build up a certain momentum. Now the unfortunate thing is, human nature being what it is, some big, huge change happens in your life and you fall away from the practice, you know, you might not go back to it. But, if you persevere, you will experience rewards that will keep you on it. Which is why, if it was only about the end of the path, if it was only about the end of the path, then you'd say, well, this guy's been doing this for 30 years and he's not a Buddha yet. Hmm. (laughs) But it's not about the end of the path. As you said, you know, it just keeps getting better. And then the question comes, well, if there is, a, it, 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 does it matter whether there's an end or not? Or maybe it's better there's not. As long as it keeps getting better, it can just keep getting better forever. So we don't care. So what we want to do is we want to look at this and we want to see what we're going, what we're going to talk about is um, really right view. The only reason anybody ever undertakes the path is that they have established right view or right understanding, which is that they can see that, yes, it's conceivable that this can be achieved. And, of course, you do need some reinforcement in the sense you need to see some people for whom it's worked. They don't have to be arhats. They don't have to be Buddhists. But you need to see some people who are are significantly along the way and close to that. That's going to make, that's going to reaffirm your confidence a whole lot, right? And then you've got to become one of those so that you can do the same for other people. Okay. So I think the time it, it, it's the time to start getting into it. What does it mean? Now, the end of the path is the total, complete, forever cessation of every kind 
of craving and every kind of suffering. But there are stages of awakening. There's, there's stages at which you can be enlightened before you've reached that. Okay? But let's just let's get a little snapshot of the end, the supposed end of the path, whether there's really an end or not, but supposedly what it looks like is there is absolutely no more craving. <coughs> it's completely been <coughs> completely eliminated from your mind stream. You have no more personal suffering. The only reason that that's happened is because you have attained perfect wisdom. And with that wisdom comes compassion. So that's the, that's the end of the path. It does sound pretty good. And what's involved, the steps are pretty simple. You need to eliminate craving. To eliminate craving, you need to know why craving is there. Craving comes from delusion. So if you want to eliminate craving completely, you have to eliminate the delusion that it's based on. Right? Eliminate delusion, overcome ignorance, and then you can get rid of craving. Uh, overcoming delusion and attaining wisdom are actually one and the same thing. Delusion is believing things are a way that they really aren't. Wisdom is seeing things the way they really are. So, overcoming delusion and wisdom, one and the same thing. No difference, right? Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Uh, if it's directly relevant to what I'm saying right now, yeah. A little bit because I was thinking about the chocolate cake thing, and somebody's saying that if you eat the chocolate cake only because you're angry, sort of implying that that might not be a good thing, but it seems like if you have the wisdom, you might realize, like, well, the chocolate cake activates the pleasure part of my brain and it actually decreases the anger part of my brain. So if I concentrate on that and, and enjoy it, I might be able to take a couple bites and it might actually be a good thing to do. Well, that, that, rather than applying this kind of like law, like, well, that's bad to do that, you know. It's like it's more of a discernment of what is actually happening and, and what makes sense to do. Okay, this this is this is not about wisdom. That's about skillful means. Ah. That's about skillful means. It'll come to that. But so so really, uh, I'm trying to define the problem so we can start talking about the solution over here. The problem is the delusion we experience. The solution is to gain the wisdom that dispels the delusion, and that will eliminate the craving. Okay. So really everything that the fourth truth is about is how, what are the things that you can do that will dispel the illusion and bring you to a place of wisdom. Because once you have the, place, once you have the wisdom, the nature of the wisdom is such that compassion comes automatically, and the nature of the wisdom is such that the, the suffering ends. So it comes down to seeing through the delusion. What is the delusion? Right. So this is really what the third truth is about. The complete, total, permanent cessation of suffering happens with the complete, total, permanent cessation of delusion, or of craving. And that comes with the complete overcoming of delusion. So this becomes our focus then, the delusion. Okay. 
And the nature of the delusion? Well, the delusion is the way we ordinarily see things. Very simply, I perceive myself <coughs> as a separate being. There's all of you, there's the rest of the world, but then there's me. I'm separate. And then I perceive myself in this world of other people and all kinds of other things that I feel like I understand more or less. At least well enough to navigate in this world. I I understand people and I understand things. And the third part of the delusion is that I notice that whenever I'm interacting with other people and things, sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. When it's pleasant, I usually feel happy. And when it's unpleasant, I usually feel unhappy. So, therefore, I, this separate being, in order to be happy, which is the way I want to be, and not unhappy, which is the way I don't want to be, I need to exercise some control over my interaction with that world of people and things out there so, so that it goes the way I want it to. That's the whole delusion right there. And every part of it, every part of it is something we need to overcome. The idea that, that I am the separate entity. That's not true. It's really hard to believe it's not true. But it's not true. And we're so attached to the idea that as soon as we begin to suspect it's not true, we start to feel afraid and miserable and lost. <coughs> which makes it hard to get to the other side where the wisdom lies, which is knowing with absolute certainty that I am not this separate being that I feel like I am. Then, I also, another part of the illusion is that I live in a world of other self-existent beings. All of you people are self-existent the same way I am. And I know what it's like for me, so I know you're doing the same thing that I am. You're trying to make things turn out the way you want. And hey, there's only so much good things going around. So that means sooner or later we're going to bump heads. And this world is full of things and the things and the pleasure they give me are what makes me happy. And so I'm kind of locked in. I have no choice. I've got to figure out the things that are good for me and the things that aren't. Now I've got to compete with the rest of you to get my things. That's not true either. So it's not true that you are a separate self. It's not true that the world is made up of a bunch of other separate things the way they appear to you and that your understanding of the world is accurate. Because your understanding of the world isn't accurate. And it's absolutely not true that the answer to your happiness comes from successfully negotiating you getting the things that you want and, and not getting the things that you don't want. That's the illusion. Yep. So I just wanted to ask you that, yeah. but think of it in the other frame, and you say, I'm not a separate being. Let's start with that one. Yeah. Turn that into the positive. Tell me what it is I am. All right. This is this is the part where it gets challenging. Yeah. If, if, if I'm not a separate being, what am I? Because 
the reason that we see the world the way we do is the way our mind works. Our mind constructs a self and it constructs a world of, of individual objects. And this is going to be, this is absolutely the hardest part of the whole process. This is the cause of the delusion, is because our mind doesn't know any other way to look at things. And it's the problem we're going to run into when we're trying to solve the riddle intellectually. And if I try to explain it to you or you try to understand it based on my words, is at some level your mind's going to keep on doing what it's always done. And no matter how many different ways I might explain to you that you aren't the separate self you think you are, your mind is going to try to devise some way that sounds like it agrees with that, but it's still got a separate thing, separate selfness to hold on to. And we find this in Buddhism. We find people talking about individual mind streams. We have people talking about the continuum of becoming. We have people talking about the alaya consciousness. Buddhism is full, full of attempts by brilliant people with absolutely fabulous minds whose minds keep doing exactly the same thing, trying to find a way, on the one hand, to look like, yeah, got your Buddha, no self, really I'm this mind stream over here. Right? It's not, it, it, I can't give you a simple answer. Because it's not going to work. You wouldn't hear it if I tried. It, it would sound, it would sound, it, 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 you, you'd feel Try like it. you got it, but it sound like something else. Try it. Inevitably, we will have to. As a part of this, we, it's, it's a question of pointing the way. But what I'm telling you is I'll point the way and you'll actually see where I'm pointing. But then your mind, your, your, your mind will try to take things back the way they were. It's a little bit like, the, if I move on a little bit for spirit, and we talk about the table exists and it's solid, but it isn't really because it's only you know ninety five percent of the table space. So M actually, much more than ninety five percent. Okay, yeah. so ninety nine point nine percent is space. Mm -hmm. Yet I see it as a solid thing. That's so right. That's obviously an illusion that it's solid, whatever that means. Yeah. I know I can sit on it and I don't fall in the chair. Yeah, that, actually, that, that that is a very good example. Yeah, and it's it, we think it's a solid thing because we don't fall through it. Um, not, not because it is solid, but because we don't fall through it. But, yeah. You had said that, no, we're not separate, but seeing this creates fear and loss. Perhaps an approach to being able to see it is to go back to explaining how the loss of a self that was never there in the first place creates... Fear and loss. How? How? I'm. I'm still trying to grab onto. How are we not separate? <laughs> okay. Well, let's. Let's. We're just. We're trying to go through this systematically. That's the end of the path. Okay. So, in the course of that, we're going. We're going. We're. We're going to be talking about this. The rest of the weekend is going to come up over and over again. What do you think? And. Uh, and it's going to keep coming up in, in the weeks and months that, that follow. It is part of the practice. It's part of the study and the practice. So it's, it's not something that's going to be over with in short order. 
but we don't need we don't need to jump ahead and try to work on these basically problems that are that are, are, are not going we're not going to be able to make much progress on yet we're going to be able to make much better progress on these problems after after we sort of get the whole picture together okay and, and we see the steps that are involved it is a realization. Not-self is a profound realization. Okay? And all that you're going to be able to do intellectually is to come up with some, uh, some insights of a purely intellectual nature that help point the way to that, that serve to reinforce your confidence that indeed doing the things that are necessary in order to have that realization uh, do make sense. That that that's where we're going to go with it. Okay. Okay. So there is this illusion, and the answer is to get through it. It's not an all or none thing. It happens by stages, and it's important to understand the stages by which it happens. The self. It. The self that we're talking about has two aspects to it. One is this feeling, this sense, this inescapable sense of I am. And I am means I am separate. I am this. I am not that. And that's a feeling. It requires no thought. No conceptualization, no knowledge, no information. It is just a pure gut level sense, right? You know what I'm talking about? You have that. You're going to have that until you become a Buddha. Okay? The other part of the self, the mind, because of this feeling, because of this sense, constructs a an ego self. It is a construction of the mind. It is conceptual. It is ideational. It's built up out of a lot of different pieces. And it's the person that you think you are. Not the, not the separate self that you feel you are, but the person you think you are. It's this ego self. And that that's our first target. The first stage of enlightenment is when you can see clearly, when that ego self becomes transparent, so you see it for exactly what it is, something manufactured by your mind. It doesn't go away. If you became egoless, we'd probably have to put you in a psychiatric hospital and feed you and take care of you. You won't become egoless. But your ego will become transparent. You will cease to believe, I am my ego. And that is the first stage of enlightenment. You still have the inherent sense of being a self. And you still have the craving that, on the one hand, is part of the logic of being a separate self, and on the other hand, is a result of how many years have you lived? That many years, days, hours, and minutes of reinforcing that view through habit. 
So you have a massive habit of acting and reacting as though this ego self was you. It's become transparent, but you but you're gonna find that you keep acting. Well what when you get to the place where it's really clear and you have this deep experience that that I am not that, that is not me, and you see through it. You'll have a period of time where all of your habitual ways of reacting are are temporarily at bay. But then they'll start coming in. And you have a lot of work to do. Every time one of those habits, habitual ways of thinking, kicks in, you have to recognize it, and you have to turn the lights on again and see things how they really are. What is going to tell you that that's happened is you're going to start suffering, and you're going to start saying, okay, why am I suffering? You say, okay, there's ego clinging behind this. And why am I clinging to this ego? It's just a mechanism my brain has for keeping my laundry separate from yours. <laughs> so you stop clinging, and, and the suffering is attenuated. The other way you become aware of it is you look out there and you say, ooh, I'm causing her suffering. Why am I doing that? Oh, it's this ego clinging. Why am I clinging to this ego? Oh, let me let go of it. That's the first stage of enlightenment. You have to keep practicing that way. And then you'll get to a place where basically you recognize that all of this is coming out of this residue of craving. And you've got to focus on the craving. You've got to work with the craving. And so you start working with the craving. And you will have reached the second stage of enlightenment when you've got that craving down to a point where it can't ever really take you over anymore. It's still there, but it's, it's much weaker, and it can't take you over. It still causes you a certain degree of suffering, angst, dissatisfaction. You may wake up in the morning with this sort of uh, uh, vague anxiety, and you might be able to trace it to, yes, I've still got these cravings and longings and fears and things like that but it won't overwhelm you anymore. And that is the second stage of enlightenment. That's a huge amount of progress. Even the first stage, you're going to be a better person to be in the world with. Although you can still do some pretty obnoxious things. <laughs> but you're going to be a better person to be in the world with. By the time you get to the second stage, it's, it's really made an important difference. So you keep working with that craving until you get rid of all of the craving that has come from the idea that I am this ego self and my happiness comes from the things that happen to me and my unhappiness comes from things that happen to me. You will have reached the third stage of enlightenment when all of that craving is gone. You still feel like you are a separate self and you still have a clinging to existence. And so there's still a subtle residue of suffering there, of existential angst. Because I want to keep being, and, but I know that, that this separate self that I feel like I am is an illusion. I've already learned enough to know that it's an illusion, even though it feels so real. And 
I don't want to stop being this separate self. So there's still a little bit of subtle suffering there. But that's the third stage of enlightenment. And then finally, you get rid of that inherent sense of self. And that is the fourth stage of enlightenment. Then there is no more suffering. There is no more illusion of any kind at all, or any of the things that come from it. The way you can think of it is the ego self and the sense of self are like two roots. So what we do before the first stage of enlightenment is we hack away enough of the brambles growing out of these roots to be able to get at it, and we dig up the first root. Now we've got to go and hack away enough of the rest to get at the second root. And so that's what the first, second, third, fourth stages of enlightenment are about. You get at the first root, gives you a chance to make some really good progress. With the craving, remember the craving comes out of the, the delusion. And you're still left with part of the delusion. That's the second root. So when you can hack enough of it away, then you can, then you can eliminate the other root, the second root. So it's all about overcoming illusion. So that will bring us up to, if you can, I will summarize the third noble truth. The complete and total cessation of suffering and craving is possible when the delusion that supports it has been totally overcome and been replaced by wisdom. So now we're going to talk about the path to the end of suffering, which is also the path to wisdom.